The following podcast contains explicit content if you play it backwards at 3.7 times speed over Stairway to Heaven. Hello and welcome to Leading Questions. I'm Evelyn and this episode Hannah and I spoke to Professor Susan Davies, the Joseph Story Senior Lecturer on Law at Harvard Law School and Litigation Partner at Kirkland & Ellis. We spoke with Professor Davies about her incredible career, including roles in all three branches of government. We also hear about how, even after playing a leading role in the confirmation processes of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, Professor Davies was still scared to stand up in front of a room full of law students. And that room didn't even include me with my terrifying sense of style. Without further ado, enjoy the interview. Professor Susan Davies, you are currently the Joseph Story Senior Lecturer on Law here at Harvard Law School. You are a litigation partner at Kirkland & Ellis. You were previously Deputy White House Counsel to President Obama, responsible for judicial selection and the confirmation processes of Justices Sotomayor and Kagan. And you have served in positions throughout government, including counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee and several positions in the Department of Justice. That is an extraordinary career that gives us lots to talk about today today. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start with your Bachelor of Science from Yale. Um, What did you study as an undergraduate? Molecular biology and philosophy. Right. Uh, The obvious precursor to a a law degree. What took you uh, into that area? Uh, I have always loved puzzles uh, in whatever dimension and whatever variety they they come. And uh, much of biology is about understanding a puzzle that has been constructed in some other way. And much of philosophy is about grappling with the way, for me at least, the way of getting at puzzles when there is no, not only no immediate, but maybe no ever solution to the questions being presented. And they did, it's not obvious perhaps for most people, but it became obvious for me that law was an extension of that kind of interest and that kind of fascination. It had... um, or it has, much of the immediacy of science and much of the um, vision and depth of philosophy. The Mm -hmm. kinds of puzzles that it presents seem to me to be the kind that I could participate in most effectively and therefore most joyfully. So did you always intend to go on to law school or was that something that you came to later? Oh no, I graduated from college expecting to become a research MD. Oh, really? An immunologist, yes, and spent a couple of years working in an immunology lab doing research uh, before I realized that the pace of uh, scientific research, beginning every week, every Monday morning, by pulling the spleens out of 100 mice and mashing them up in a garlic press in order literally to... Literally a garlic press? Literally a garlic press. I have not been able to use a garlic press since, yeah. and it has been a very They're long so time. <laughs> they are very handy. I, I, you know, one of the reasons to tie your life to someone else is so that someone else will do the things you don't want to, like minced garlic. Um, that uh, doing, doing research on T-cells in, in, in murine immune systems uh, was valuable and it's important. And I was working in a cancer research lab. But the, um, the time frame of impact, mm-hmm. of change that I could both participate in and see, speaks maybe to a little attention issue on my part or, or perhaps a desire for uh, an understanding of what I was doing and how it was having an effect. So I took my puzzle-solving self to the University of Chicago to go to law school. And did you enjoy that, law school? 
I am very glad I did it. Uh, the loyally answer. <laughs> <laughs> what What did you find not so enjoyable about it? It's really hard. <laughs> That's so nice to hear. <laughs> it was really hard. And in fact, I, uh, I uh, thought it was too hard. I thought I wasn't made for it. I was going to drop out in my first... Uh, Chicago's on quarters, so you're right. there for nine uh, grading periods. I was ready to drop out, but uh, it's a testament uh, either to the malleability of my own thoughts at the time or to the great faculty at the U of C, to Cass Sunstein and David Strauss, that after conversation, I agreed to at least stick it out through the new year and uh, was glad that I did. Um, the metrics of success in learning how to, as we say, think like a lawyer and... Uh, feel confident and competent in that space were slower coming for me than they were for many of my classmates. And I needed to uh, allow myself the time to find my pace. Do you remember a moment or a subject or something that you particularly enjoyed that made you feel more at home in the law? Administrative law. Right. I took ad law and I thought, yes, this is a puzzle. This is a puzzle that was created, and then all the pieces were turned upside down and mixed up, and they left some of them out of the box, and then you as a lawyer are asked to put together the picture and make it whole. So was that the moment where you decided public law was something that you were more interested in? I don't think there was a moment when I decided. I think I just realized, like many people, I did a clerkship uh, right after graduation. I think I more woke up to the fact that I had unconsciously decided to go into public law than ever consciously analyzed what the possibilities were. I was never going to be anything but a litigator. I'm not a deal person or you know, a structured finance person or anything like that. Um, but I never really decided. As you've said, your first stop after law school was a clerkship for then Judge Breyer on the First Circuit. And a few years later, you clerked for Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court. And unless I miss my mark, Judge Breyer was also a professor of ad law at one time. Was this part of what uh, either attracted you to the clerkship or was this something that you two had in common while you it, were in chambers? One of the many reasons that I wanted very much to clerk for Steve Breyer was that he was an ad law guru and, an, and quite knowledgeable about antitrust as well. So yes, it was a, it was a definite attraction. What was clerking like? For Breyer? For Kennedy? Yes. I don't. I, I can't generalize about clerking. Okay, so tell right? us about clerking for Judge Breyer. They were both. Um, I urge all of my students here who want to be litigators, and even a few who don't, to consider clerking, because both of those wonderful jurists uh, gave the kind of experience to their clerks in very different ways. They have very different personalities. I need only point anyone to an oral argument, audio. And if you're lucky, the visual to understand <laughs> that they have very different approaches to asking questions. And I will say also that those approaches reflect how they ponder questions in private as well. They're very different uh, in style, but they're both extraordinarily smart and incredibly generous in their time, in their explanation, in their opportunities for their clerks. And they both gave in clerking that uh, structure and function to their little chambers, the tiny little juridical law firm that is one partner and four associates and very beleaguered support staff. The change is over every year. They, they both were in a position to ask a lot of me and my fellow clerks to demand, but that the stretch that they were looking for was never a stretch that broke anybody. And so I think my co-clerks in both of those clerkships and I would all say that we left knowing more about the law and significantly more about how to be a lawyer 
than we did when we arrived. And the other advantage I would say just of, of any kind of clerking, but certainly of those two experiences for me, is sitting in the courtroom and watching lawyers do their thing. You see just the panoply of whatever the geography is that you're clerking in, the good, the bad, the public, the private, the first-timers, the veterans, the where did you come from, and <laughs> why don't you go back there um, uh, advocates. But it really, it's like, a, it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet of the local lawyering. We've been lucky to speak with other professors who also clerked earlier in their career, but your experience is a little different for taking time between clerkships. Did you approach your second clerkship differently for having taken that time off between? Yes. I didn't think of it as taking time off. Time off, off. is the wrong way to put that. Time I was spent working, not clerking in between. I was working hard. Time out of the judicial range. Out of the judicial range. And yes, I did. Um, for, for starters, when you arrive in a clerkship right out of law school, you really are, you're just so raw. Mm-hmm. You know what all the standards are, but you've never seen them implemented. What is an abuse of discretion? I had no idea. You know, what would a reasonable juror find? How should I know? Uh, So it's partly just exposure, like any other kind of thing. It's exposure. But for me, the two years in between uh, then Judge Breyer and Justice Kennedy were particularly informative because one of them I spent in what I must say is the best job I ever had. I was a Bristow Fellow in the Solicitor General's office. And being able to see and to participate a bit in in the United States government's lawyering at the Supreme Court and the appellate branch is even better than the all-you-can-eat buffet. It's like the all-you-can-eat dessert buffet. (laughs) Um, So I just simply saw in a very intensive way a whole lot about appellate lawyering and federal issues. And uh, the other uh, year, the second year in between, I worked in the White House Counsel's Office for President Clinton on judicial nominations. And in fact, my last project there was... uh, the transformation of Judge Breyer into Justice Breyer. We started in our new job in the Marble Palace on this new jobs on the same day in offices next door to each other. So um, seeing the nomination process and having spent a year reading all the works of people who were being nominated to the to the federal appellate bench also gave me really, really lucky for me uh, a, a vision and a uh, that I that I wouldn't have had, didn't have, couldn't have had right out of law school. So that's a pretty good survey of a lot of your government lawyering experience. You've got the couple of years in the Department of Justice between the clerkships, the Office of Solicitor General, and then the Office of Policy Development. Uh, You'd later return to the DOJ as senior counsel in the antitrust division, and you mentioned that you spent time as special counsel to President Clinton. Uh, That's a lot of government lawyering. How different were each of the roles and the culture inside each of those different divisions and offices. Wow. I hadn't thought about it that way. They were as different as the people who occupied them. Uh, For me, it has always been the case, I think, that the job is more defined in terms of both the work and the feel by the boss than it is by what office or what structure or what institution um, it is. It's the tone is set, the goals are defined, and the kind of attitudinal approach of the place depends on your who you're reporting to. And so I have been both lucky and blessed as that, that, that little jumping around path of jobs that you're pointing to, that I've had the great good fortune to work for people, without exception, um, who had both the confidence in their own skills 
and their ability to channel whatever the ultimate uh, the ultimate boss was or the ultimate goal was, whether it's litigating in the interest of the people of the United States or representing the people of Vermont or serving um, in the executive office of the president, whatever the, the ultimate um, client was, I was lucky enough to work for people who managed the balance of both keeping that client's interest in mind while advocating kind of internally for what those best interests should be. You said the jumping around path Mm -hmm. uh, through the different offices. How much of that was intentional seeking out certain roles or how much of it was just the product of opportunity that certain jobs came up at certain times? Uh, How much of it was planned? Almost none, right? I'm going to borrow your phrase, productive opportunity. I've referred to it as a random walk through the law (laughs) and the the triumph of serendipity over planning. Um, Washington is a very small town. And once you get, um, and I say this sometimes to my students, once you get a start in whatever town you're in, whatever field or place, whether it's geographic or topical, it's remarkable what doors will open up. And quite frankly, one of the advantages of a clerkship is it's a credentialing uh, mechanism uh, that people will, other employers will take for a proxy. We need someone of a certain you know, skill set, this is a good substitute for actually knowing uh, this about such a person. So no, I, I always plan. I always have a, what I should be doing and what I might want to be doing next in mind. And have found it very valuable to plan so that when the unexpected opportunity comes along, I can compare it to what I thought I would want to do and have a good idea of whether it's a, a turn I should take. I have not planned I think anything except applying for clerkships. And as you noted, those were spaced out. So no, I plan a lot and I have a serendipitous path. And how much was working in government like what you expected it to be? When you fell in love with administrative law at university and you decided to get involved in public law, how much of actually working in government was you know, this ideal that you'd, you'd sort of uh, had for yourself and how much, what was the biggest surprise? Uh, I think it actually was very much right. like what I had expected, or I shouldn't even say expected, probably hoped that it would be, that to have the United States as a client or to have, you know, a branch, you know, Article 1, Article 2, Article 3, if those are your clients, um, and I would reiterate, it depends a lot on who the principal is, but it was as I expected, pretty much, that the focus was on the best interests of, you know, whichever constitutional entity uh, that it was. And I'm sorry, I lost the second half of your question. What was the biggest surprise once you got inside? But it sounds oh. like there maybe wasn't. Well, they were, they were all mostly delightful surprises. I will say at the Justice Department, the big surprise, the thing I didn't realize, was that the vast bulk of the DOJ and you know, outside the executive office of the president and the, and the Hill, but presumably the, the executive branch of government is skilled, dedicated, hardworking, smart career people. Administration in, administration out, um, really, really committed people doing the bulk of the work most of the time. I don't know what the percentages are, but the, but the, the, they're the cake 
and it, the cake gets refrosted every few every few years. But um, I learned so much from people who had actually committed their professional lives to certain topics, certain areas, certain geographies, uh, certain missions. That was the big surprise, and it was a very, very gratifying one. As you've alluded to, you've managed to work for all three branches of government. Uh, you also spent time working for Senator Leahy and the Senate Judiciary Committee for eight years, uh, ultimately as general counsel and chief counsel for intellectual property. Can you tell us what the role of counsel to the Judiciary Committee involves and what you did day to day? Day to day is a little hard, but counsel to the Judiciary Committee then, and I think now, uh, depends on the portfolio of the senator. So each of the senators on judicial will have not only their presence on the full committee, but the antitrust subcommittee or, you know, the U.S. courts subcommittee, or they'll have various subcommittees that tend to line up with the constituent and policy interests of the senators. The Senate is largely governed by seniority and tradition. So you wait your turn as you're a junior to get whatever your treasured spot is. Luckily, not everybody treasures uh, the same thing. And the chair and the ranking member generally don't uh, serve uh, as chair ranking on sub on subcommittees. So uh, being general counsel to the Judiciary Committee uh, for Senator Leahy when he was the chair was a lot about um, like being the general counsel of any organization, a relatively small organization, but keeping track of everything that was going on, providing legal advice about the state of the law and how it was proposed to be changed by various bills um, and amendments, and helping manage the internal I mean, think about the human resources kinds of issues, pay issues, just the sort of administrative issues, not administrative law, but administrative um, management kind of issues uh, of, any, of any institution, and that's what it was. It was great um, to know the councils on both sides, the Republican and Democrat, and to have a kind of uh, unifying role uh, among those good people. The early 2000s, we imagine, must have been an interesting time to focus on IP uh, and the related technology issues. And some of those topics are maybe back today with tech as sort of the front front page issue again. How are the debates about those questions today different or the same as when you were on the Judiciary Committee? Um, so they have some threads that are always, maybe ever going to be the same. Legislative action lags business action every time and when you're talking about technology by the time you get the bill on the markup the technology has changed and additionally and i think we saw this in the recent facebook hearings and this is not meant in any way no one can be expert on on everything and very few people are actually expert on anything but the you saw the sort of technological generational divide between witness and questioner in some of those in some of those awkward moments um, and i think that was a stellar example of a of any a problem uh, that any legislature will have kind of keeping up with technology, but um, uh, particularly in the IP space, particularly when you're talking about content and, well, if you're Snapchatting a picture, like, what does that mean for <laughs> the person who took the picture, the person who manipulated the picture, the person who sent the picture, the picture? First, the legislators have to understand Snapchat. Right. 
And by the time people have gotten around to giving the sort of thorough consideration you want all legislation to get, it's, it's old news. Mm-hmm. So I think one thing that's a little different now is that some of the senators, because the issues are a little different now, uh, in the early 2000s, it was a, a, kind of a who owns what and what can be done with it. Um, now the conversation is a little more like, okay, who owns what? What can be done with it? And what are we going to do about the harms that are caused by the using of this stuff? And the privacy and security issues are present now in a way, given technology, that they weren't so omnipresent in the early 2000s. To round out a tour of government or perhaps to return uh, to an Article Two client, you spent two years then as President Obama, in President Obama's White House Counsel's Office where you were responsible for judicial selection. How did you decide that you wanted to go back to the executive branch or to the White House Counsel's Office in particular? So I, I was asked... And that I helps. said yes. Um, <laughs> How the, did you decide to say yes? That'll do it. That'll do it. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't know what it says about me, so I'll just say it. I love helping populate the federal bench. I have an enormous amount of respect for the federal judiciary, for the role it has played. A little slow start at the beginning of our nation, but once it picked up its proper speed and found its own rhythm, like me in law school maybe, um, the, 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 the first hope and the last chance of mm-hmm. liberty uh, and law in the United States, you know, decade in, decade out, century in, century out, and encountering and considering and knowing and, 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 and helping along some of the glorious legal talent that this country produces gave me so much joy when I worked on it in the Clinton administration, that an opportunity to do it again in, in, in a somewhat higher level was something I just wasn't going to say no to. I will also say this. There are not a lot of people who do judicial nominations. I mean, I don't think they had a lot of people to ask. Um, but that said, I was delighted. So how do you go about finding the next judge for this circuit court? How do you how do you find the generation of talent that you want to nurture and put onto the bench? So, What's that process like? You will not be surprised to know that everyone in the legal community has views. Lawyers? Lawyers opinions? have opinions and Never. views. And some of them about themselves. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and they volunteer. You get a lot mm. of um, unsolicited advice. But I will say uh, separating out the district court judges for whom senators have traditionally a lot of input Interesting. in the advice and consent uh, space. They are represent a state, and all the districts are either a state or a part of a state, and are pretty well situated, I think, and certainly our tradition has developed that they they have, um, you know, not an, not an absolute say, obviously, but a fair amount of input about who that... Um, who those those people should be. So it is often the case with district judges that it is almost immediately a consultation with the relevant senators. Supreme Court justices entirely within the purview of presidents. The uh, the tradition on appellate judges is um, depends on the president and the senator. Uh, I don't know of a president who doesn't think that they are rather more the president's choice, so to speak, than the senators. And I don't know of a senator who doesn't think uh, the opposite. So it's a it's a little more of a dance. But every transition process, when a new president is coming in, uh, one of the projects, or I should say every transition process of which I'm aware, is the development of a big, hefty binder, electronic or paper, of potential appellate judges 
and usually a list of Supreme Court justices for every jurisdiction. And then um, I hope it's not a disappointment to say some of them are obvious, some of the people that you would think of are obvious, and a lot of it is working the phone, mm-hmm. calling people, inviting, inviting um, identity groups and bar associations and various organized legal communities in to talk and calling people. It's a job that is mostly spent on the phone. You also worked on the confirmation processes for, as you say, Justices mm-hmm. Sotomayor and Kagan. Uh, how much is a Supreme Court confirmation process different from the ones you've just outlined? Because it's more complicated or a bigger deal it's or the a, president's it, own? Does it, I'll rephrase the question. Does it bear more than a passing resemblance in the family tree to the rest of the work or is it? It's a big tree okay. and the branches are fairly far apart. Okay. But yes, yeah, so I think every president, when you think about the legacy of a president, you think about the justices that that, that, that president put um, on the Supreme Court. I think I have been heard to say that what can a president hope for? Right? Mm. Maybe some big piece of legislation, perhaps a couple wars, and the judges that are left for life, and most visibly and notably, um, the Supreme Court justices. And I think, and here I speak with knowledge of only a couple, but with, but with arrogant confidence of almost every one, that they come to office thinking, and when I'm putting someone on the Supreme Court, this is who it's going to be. Mm. I think presidents identify with their justices. I think they want people who understand and live the law the way that they would were they judicial rather than political Mm -hmm. creatures. So I think it's personal in a way that many of the other appointments aren't, and it's forever in a way that executive branch appointments Mm -hmm. aren't. So I think it's different in tone and in feeling, and it is very much the president's. Mm -hmm. So the the vetting and the research, you know, the preparation is obviously a lot more intense for the hearings and the public. But I think for every president, it's a much, it is, I shouldn't say more, it is very personal. Coming up to your current role, or one of your current roles, You've once said that people often think that with a career like mine, teaching must have been on the agenda, but it hasn't been a goal for me because I have a lifelong fear of public speaking. And yet, since 2012, you have taught a section of the required first year course in legislation and regulation here at Harvard Law School. Given the fear of public speaking, why did you decide to come and teach? To conquer the fear of public speaking. How's that working? Um... It's better. It's not conquered, but they're called irrational fears for a reason. <laughs> um, I it um, fear of public speaking had shaped much of what I was willing to do and interested in doing in a way that I realized by my mid forties when I was casting about for my next thing to do that if I didn't try to address that fear, I would regret it. And. Um, Martha Minow and John Manning, uh, dear friends of longstanding, uh, had been encouraging me and asking me to teach. And I realized that I was saying no out of fear rather than lack of interest. I owed so much to the people who taught me, and they seemed to live so joyfully in the law that I realized the combination of the push and the pull meant that I should try it. And I will say my first year of teaching, I was sick every day that is no longer the case so i think i'm making progress it's just such a striking thing to say after your career 
um, that speaking to a bunch of law students was still so uh, intimidating for you. It is, but I didn't know about the other side of it. Yes, it's still intimidating, but the other side of it is just so rewarding because they talk back <laughs> and they say interesting things. And I feel like when it's going well, we're getting somewhere together. Understanding as much on my part as on theirs is growing. And I didn't realize public speaking that's making speeches would never appeal. Public speaking that is teaching has proven to be so fantastically rewarding um, that I'm not sorry, and I keep coming back. You said that fear of public speaking shaped your career in certain ways. Given that you now are seeing a lot of the rewards, do you wish that you'd confronted it earlier? Do you think anything oh, yeah. would have been different? I, the, the largest, the obvious, is I did not become what would have been obvious. I didn't become an appellate advocate because it, it just wasn't worth it. I mean, I did a little of it. It just wasn't worth it or didn't seem to be worth it. That would probably have been very different, but I don't have any regrets on that score. I've had a, I have had, I do have, and I will continue to have a lot of fun um, and a lot of satisfaction in what I do, but it, it would definitely have been different. Is it different to general self-confidence? Do you ha it, Was there some sense that it was tied to self-confidence in general, or was it a completely different kind of fear? No, it was like spiders or snakes or tall buildings. I, my level of self-confidence I don't think is I, I really <laughs> really can't go into that but I don't think it was I don't think it was affected by that I think it was its own and is its own peculiar little thing interesting something we ask a lot of guests um, who have been in you know these uh, the rooms where it happens uh, is whether they've ever felt imposter syndrome when they've been in those rooms is that something that you ever experienced? In those rooms? Actually, no. I hope this doesn't make me sound like a, just a thundering jerk. But um, the Oval Office, the conference room, sitting with a justice, talking to senators, that's not where I felt imposter syndrome. No. No, those I'm fine with. Those I feel comfortable and confident. I'm a I like the I like advocacy, but I really like counseling as a lawyer, and I felt that I was kind of doing what I was made to do in those rooms. You've spent, as we've just recounted, uh, a lot of your career in government, and I understand you still have a large pro bono practice uh, now that you're at Kirkland. What has it been about the public interest work that, even if ex ante you didn't necessarily know you were ending up there, has kept you there? Oh, it has that same. Uh, that same flavor of that we were talking about earlier of impact mm. that I have some set of skills I have some gift that I can give uh, and to deploy the skills and to give the gifts particularly uh, in concert with younger lawyers to, to, to whom I can impart something but who bring also the energy and insight of fresh eyes uh, that I can work with um, and, and learn from as well as teach. To take those skills, to take those gifts, and to make a difference, I know it sounds corny, but it, that's what I think the law is. How have you found working for a commercial farmer in the private sector after all those years in government? It's, it's still a little bit of a novelty. Um, I think it would be very different to grow up in a big law, mm. you know, capital B, capital L, big law firm, and I didn't. I didn't have to um, pay the dues. Uh, Kirkland is a great firm 
especially for litigation. And I, I admire the younger lawyers, um, but I, I paid my dues into a different set of accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in, a, in a way, I feel sometimes a little guilty. I seem to be reaping the benefits of, of that now at Kirkland when I didn't, uh, you know, wasn't participating in that particular credit union as a, as a young lawyer. You've talked a bit today about the advice that you give to students and younger lawyers. And given some of the appearances and panels that you've done here at HLS about careers and things like that, it seems that mentorship is an important part of how you see your work. Uh, has, have mentors played an important role in your career? Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm, not, I've, I'm lost in the current vocabulary of mentors and sponsors and directors, but older people and younger people, I can do that. People who have had a set of experiences or been around the block, giving you directions on how to get around the block, absolutely. I have been, I have just not, many people can point to one or two, I just have bouquet of mentors. I have been really lucky. And what makes an effective mentor and mentee relationship investment Hmm. and it's hard to plan that maybe impossible so i get a law firm i get every year i get assigned an incoming associate to and i will take that person out to breakfast and i will try and be helpful and they're they're all nice smart interesting people it's not hard one could do that at a law school as well you get an assigned um, older people. But the real chemistry, the real kick it off is when, like any other human relationship, is somewhat unpredictable. And I think it involves mutual investment. When I care about, not just in an emotional sense, but in a we're lawyers together sense, in what you are doing and can do. And when you care about how we work together, that's, that's what makes it click. It's unpredictable, but I think of it in terms of investment. I hope that doesn't sound too utilitarian. But, but that's, what makes, that's what makes it work. Is there a mistake that you see mentees making Younger people. Often? Yeah, younger people. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, they pick, they pick their mentor. I've had people walk in and say, I'd like to network with you. Okay, uh, leave the door open. Uh, they pick the person whose career has, whose jobs, sorry, whose jobs have been the jobs they want. And they seek, I understand this, they seek that person out and say, how can I get what you had? When, when I think they would be better served by someone who thinks about life and the law the way they do, and that person can help them chart their path. Someone should not come to me and look for help if they want to be the general counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee. But if someone wants a multifaceted public sector life, I might be able to be helpful. Does that make sense? It does. And is that partly because it's so difficult to plan a career in so many ways and a successful career? You've talked a lot about how opportunity and serendipity played uh, a large part of how your career panned out. Um, Do you think that's still very much the case for younger lawyers? I think it is very much the case, but I also think it's the case that many of the things people want are rare, right? Mm -hmm. It's like planning on being struck by lightning. But... um, you, you cannot plan on being struck by lightning. But you can, as my spouse will say to me, you can plan to, the next time there's a thunderstorm, go to the highest hill and hold a golf club over your head. <laughs> so what a mentor can do is say, if you want to be in this space, if you want to be doing these kinds of things, if this is the topic you care about or the city you care about or the way of luring that you care about, 
I can, I can help you figure out where to gather up that basket of skills, where to make that set of connections, how to place yourself on top of that hill in the thunderstorm with a putter held as high as you can reach. That's the difference. I'm still going to plan not to do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't think you're going to like this question. You've uh, held a series of demanding jobs from DOJ to the White House to capital B, capital L, big law, to now here at HLS. What do you do to keep work-life balance, and is there such a thing? Uh, there is such a thing, I believe, but I think it depends on who you're asking and what they want out of the balance. I'd say two, three things to that meaning nothing, casting no personal aspersions on you. The work-life balance, I resent the term. It juxtaposes work with life. Mm. And one of the reasons I have balance is that my work is an integral and essential part of my life. So the second thing I would say is that balance is not a static term. It's Mm. a dynamic one. That every day isn't balanced completely Mm -hmm. among the various things that I care about and to which I've committed both time and emotion. But, But if month in and month out there is an imbalance, you need to change. Mm -hmm. And one thing that I think is wildly important that I realized, I'm lucky enough to say I realized pretty young is, it's on me. Mm -hmm. If, if If I do not have the time or the energy or the focus to do something that's important to me, I need to change it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the third thing I would say, when people talk about that balance, they're usually talking about the folks at work and the folks at home. Mm-hmm. However, home is defined, whether it's a you know traditional household or a set of friends or extended family or a variety of communities, and however work is defined, whether it's paychecking work, networking work, community, um, and for me the essential part of that is that the people with whom I share my life most immediately and most intimately, my spouse and our offspring, my parents and my brothers, we are all bought into and mutually supportive of the other aspects of the life. My work at HLS is not a mystery to my son or my daughter. Mm-hmm. They come and watch and laugh at me. We, we know where everybody is and what they're doing and why it's important. And when the people on one side of that balance, it's like the investment point I was making earlier, understand and appreciate and are part of your program, it's easier, that dynamic balance is easier to maintain. That's a great answer. It's my life. Finally, we've got our set of leading questions that we ask all guests. What's one book that you've read that's had a big impact on you that you'd recommend for people to read? Well, taking the conjunctive nature of the question, um, if you asked my family what book they associate with me, they would say Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. And so I have to recommend it. Uh, to people to read, I could, would hope that they already had impact for, I think, for, I'll give you three reasons. One, uh, for, as a lawyer and as a person, great writing is always worth reading. Mm-hmm. I find it soothing. I find it exhilarating at the same time. And I like to be soothed and exhilarated at the same time. The best kind of law practice is that way. Uh, calm and hyped up. And, and Jane Austen writes beautifully. Uh, second, I think the, the display of characters of literal pride and literal prejudice, of assumptions and analysis that comes from faulty assumptions is, I'm not going to offer it up as a law school text, but thinking about thinking, mm-hmm. 
And perceiving about perceptions is incredibly important in, in, in any enterprise. And third, I, it's, it's just nice to have a comfortable place to go, whether it's people or whether it's a vacation or whether it's the armchair I read in with a cup of peppermint tea and open the book up to any old chapter and start in. It's just nice to have a haven. So you reread it? Oh, yeah. Oh, how, how often have you reread it? I've probably read it a couple hundred times. Wow. wow. <laughs> you asked. Obviously not much else going on in your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm old. I mean, I've had a lot of time to read it. Uh, what is your media diet day to day? <laughs> Starvation. Um, uh, <laughs> what do I read? Um, with a huge caveat that I need to get back to reading on paper, um, I'd say the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Post, um, long form, the Atlantic, Vanity Fair, Politico, Politico Online, and then quite frankly, of course, people send stuff around. And so as a practicing lawyer, the, the Law 360 mm -hmm. summation of news about national security and about intellectual property and about antitrust, I read those as well. I don't, I don't watch almost anything. Probably a good life choice. Mm -hmm. NPR. Do you use social media as a source of news? No. How did you have time to have the career that you've had and read Pride and Prejudice several hundred times? What's one productivity hack that you've used in your career that you can share with us? Productivity. Or problem-solving technique. How do I get things done? Oh, okay. Uh, relying on your editing and realizing this is going to be an unpopular answer. Uh, I don't watch TV. I, I don't have screen time mm. as a regular part of my day. I'm an insomniac. That'll help. And I drink a lot of coffee. These are unfortunately recurring features of <laughs> yes. the answers. Those last two might be related. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would cause an effect. Yeah. Um, I will say this, though. I have found, in seriousness, I have found it to be very productivity enhancing to be doing something I want to be doing. Mm. I, I, the laundry's backed up. I know that right? I haven't finished some of my like administrative tasks at work. If I want to be doing it, it gets done. Everyone has a priority list every day and you get through your top three things and you look at number 10 and number 11 and that's why you know I've got someone else preparing my tax forms because left to my own devices, it wouldn't happen. Well, may we all find something to work on that we really want to do. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Professor Davies. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. It's a pretty inspiring story about overcoming fears and struggles, and I, for one, am very glad Professor Davies didn't go through with dropping out of law school. At this point, being the lawyer that I am, I'd just like to issue the disclaimer that this podcast accepts no responsibility for harm that may result due to listening, and that anyone that plans to stand on the top of a hill in a storm with an umbrella does so at their own risk. May the lightning that strikes you be the good kind. Thank you.